Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Good morning, everyone. Well, this is a hard day for me. I look behind me, and you're not there. So what we thought we would do today is that we would videotape, we would send this to you, Uh, Just a week ago, we live taped our service, but uh, we were able to get together. This week is different. The band is on. We want to honor the band. We understand it. And so uh, uh, we thought, uh, let's tape it so that that represents you, the congregation. Again, my name is Pastor Wayne Lucas, Cornerstone Church, and uh, I'm glad that you joined us for a few minutes this morning. We don't want to miss coming together and meeting around the Word of God. There's something about just what God is doing and speaking through his word. And we can do it, although we're not together and we don't hear each other and see each other, but we can have a corporate sense that we are together in this place as we watch this together. So we've been on a series, and the series has been a series from Genesis where we are from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 11, a 10-part series, and this is the last part of the 10-part series. Uh, I have, I, I hesitated to put the series together because, to be honest, there was too many unanswered things in Genesis 1 to 11 I didn't even want to tackle. But when I began to study it and research it, I realized that there's a lot of answers to questions that I had, and I believe questions that you have and those that are watching with us today. So I'm going to just do a quick review. If you have your Bibles, would you take your Bibles? We're going to look to it in just a moment. But I want to do a quick review because Genesis really, it starts off in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created. And then if you go to the very end, Revelations, the very last few verses, it says, and the spirit and the bride says, come, Lord Jesus, come. And everything in between is the story of God and it's our story. But we really won't understand it unless we understand Genesis, the first 11 chapters. Quick review, God is from the beginning, and from the beginning he created all things. Through him, all things have been created. From God, we can understand the things that are important today, things like biology, geology, astronomy, anthropology, physics, and chemistry. God is a good God. Right from the beginning, he began to, over every aspect of his creation, say, it is good, it is good, it is very good. From God, all goodness comes. God is the fullness of goodness. Seven days of creation are literal days. We stand firm as the Bible defines it as each a day, 24-hour period, and therefore defining a young earth. Humankind was formed by God himself. He breathed into us life. And in so doing, we took on soul forever. For eternity, we would be a a people that would be part of his family. He made us to be eternal. And through the model of one man and one woman for life, his design was for the family. However, Genesis chapter 3, evil. Evil is not an entity of itself. Evil is a privation of everything good. Evil is like a parasite to that which is pure. If goodness is going to be good, 
then goodness necessitates the power of contrary choice. Contrary choice meaning that if you truly love me, then you have to have a choice not to love me, to choose otherwise. And God gave that choice to humankind. The fall, having made that choice and having desired to turn away from God's design, it's called the fall, Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 4, and therein is the sin nature. The sin nature speaks of the origin of sin, and that would be passed down from generation to generation to generation. Sin degenerates, and as you continue to go through Genesis, you see the compounding of the consequences of sin and how it affects not only the people, but the generations that follow. And then so wicked were the generations after many generations. We're talking hundreds of years that we come to the place of where God saw that ultimately the inclination of the heart was sinful. And so thus the flood. And in by so doing, he was purifying the seed, reestablishing his covenant relationship with us that the God's seed Messiah, Jesus, would come through. Brings us to today. There's a couple of really interesting things. Uh, I hope you stay tuned to the very end because at the very end, I want to talk about some of the things that we're going to be doing in the next few weeks uh, during this whole social isolation. We've got some things planned here at Cornerstone Church. I'm going to talk about that at the end. And in this last lesson, there are two things that have always been of huge interest to me, and that is this. Number one, what about the language groups of the world? Where did all this come from? How were we dispersed the way we were? And secondly, what about skin color, races? How do we answer for the races? And actually, the answers to those are found in Genesis chapter 11. So let's get started. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. I'm going to read. I believe that it's there for you to read on the screen. Verse 1, Now the whole world had one language and one common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone, tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the world from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. I want to go back to verse 2. It describes a post-flood civilization. The post-flood civilization migrated eastward. They came off the ark. They came upon the fertile land of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is named after the rivers out of Eden. And now a reminder that they entered into a lost world of eight ark survivors. This land that could support many people became the first cities. These first cities were 
built by Nimrod. It's talked about in the Bible. Then God commanded Noah in chapter 9. He said, don't stay in one region. When he got off the ark, he said, disperse, fill the earth, he said. Cover the earth. Yet, the post-flood people had a different idea. Just like Cain, they decided to obey God their own way. So they rebelled. They chose not to disperse as God had commanded. And their rebellion centers around a project, a tower. And this tower is not in and of itself the issue. It's the attitude, it's the heart behind the building of this tower. The tower itself represents a massive step pyramid built by bricks. We don't know what it looks like. We have some ideas. Artists have given us some renderings. But there's three fundamental things about the nature behind this rebellion. Number one, the tower was extremely tall. The idea was they were going to be high enough that God could never take their lives again. Secondly, they were going to make a name for themselves. This is a, in itself a form of pride, humanistic pride. In other words, we're going to do it apart from God. He didn't ask us to do this. He asked us to disperse, but no, we're not going to do that. We're going to gather around this one project. And thirdly, it was a collective defiance. And not be scattered over the face of the whole world. That, that's, collective, that's a collective defiance against God. It's clear. It's blatant. He commanded them to fill the earth. They said no. Were there actually enough people for all this to happen? I mean, how did you build cities? I mean, they just came off the ark. There was eight of them. Well, interesting. If you just do some math on this, the second generation of people would be counted 65 couples with an average of, I don't know how they came up with this, 8.53 kids. This amounts to 554 in the third generation. Fourth generation now goes to 2,365. Altogether, there's over 3,000 people alive at one time. Add one more generation, you add 10,000 more, and you double it every 19 years. Yeah, there were well over a million people at the point where we get to chapter 10 and 11. Then verse 5 of chapter 11, God's judgment. The Bible says, God came down to see. Now, of course, God's omnipresent. He doesn't have to come down. He's everywhere present. So what does it mean? Why does it say God came down to see? The word came down is actually very explicit. In other words, out of his greatness, he stepped down to their puniness. They thought their towers were great. But out of his greatness, he had to step down to their towers. He came down. And then verse 6, God speaks, evaluating the problem before him. And here it was. Number, four, number one, two observations. They were one people with one language. And secondly, the twofold results of that building of the tower was just the beginning of what was beginning to turn into a full-blown rebellion. In other words, if this isn't diverted now and stopped now, sin, no sin would be impossible for them to go to its depths. So, God confuses the language. We, he, we see here that the plurality of God, actually, in the text, it says uh, the Godhead, we have Yahweh, let us, let us do this. And out of this confusion of the language, three main results came from it. Number one, they would be dispersed over the face of the earth. 
They went to every region, every corner, off they went. Secondly, they quit building the tower. However, the city in which the tower was would be one of the smaller inhabitants of the people group. And thirdly, the city was named derisively Babel. Now, we think it's Babel because of, well, babbling. And that's okay, but actually the word Babel means gate of God. And this is where rebellious people proposed to build a tower that would, in their mind, be a gateway to the gods of the heavens. Babel. I want to talk about the two things of particular interest here. Languages and color. Languages. There are somewhere between six to 7,000 different languages in the world today. A common definition of a different language, what constitutes a different language, is mutual unintelligibility. You don't understand. Which is essentially people not able to understand the dialect of another people. However, that being said, within our languages, whether written, vocal, many languages, you can understand each other, even though you're of a different language. You understand words, you understand uh, idioms of the language, you can understand some portions of the written language. And so even within the language, they crisscross and, and they integrate one with another, many of them. Interesting, though, that in the languages, this process can be traced back from thousands of languages, which we have today, six to seven, into some basic people group languages that over the years have developed on into dialects. They diverge from a common language, producing new languages. Let me give some examples. Travelers and residents of Europe realize that French, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, Romania are all very similar, yet different languages. That's because they're all a derivative of Latin the language of the Roman Empire. German, Dutch, Scandinavian languages, including English, my language, have common patterns because we have been grouped in the Germanic language group. Then there are the languages of the Russians, the Polish, the Czechs, the Serbo-Croat, which are Slavic languages. See what we mean? Languages grouped into one common group, but then they have branched out multiple different sectors. There's the languages, then we can even go further. Similar uh, pictures of languages here among those of the Sankrist, those of the Indian languages. Now, evolutionists would try to explain the difference of languages by saying that we evolved from basic animal grunts into complexity of languages. But think about that for a second. Languages aren't going from simple to complex, they're actually going from complex to simple. Linguistics tell us that the ancient languages are actually extremely complex. If you question that, simply go back and read something from 100 years ago, 200 years ago, and you'll discover that it was a very complex language and language structure have gone from complex to simple. Languages around the world. But let's talk about the origin of races different skin colors. This has been a topic of great concern and huge debate. Something that I found quite interesting because of my own, my own people group and my own study of people group because actually my last name is Lucas and uh, you can go and, and you can tell by looking at me, I'm, I'm a red-headed, freckle-faced, very 
light-skinned-colored people group. But there is a whole people group that came out of a great-great-great-great-great-grandpa that came up from the southern U.S., George Lucas. And just a few years ago, my wife and I, we were in Halifax, and just outside Halifax, there's an entire street in a little village called Lucasville. And in that village, it's an entirely black community. I mean, as black as you can be. And out of that, that's a, Luke, that's a part of ancestry. That is part of my ancestry. But what took place, George went one way, and on the other direction was the side in which came to southern central Ontario. And over generations of marrying British and European, we became primarily a light-skinned people. And yet, I have relatives, if I go back far enough, just about six, seven generations that are relatives, again, near Halifax, uh, that are from my generations. And so this is of particular interest, and all of us have stories if we can trace it back far enough. So here's how they explain regarding melanin. Now, we've often said, well, it's the different pigmentation. But no, we actually all, all of us have one pigmentation. Melanin is the part which is dark brown or almost black, where different colors of skin are different shades of what they say melanin. You have dark melanin, you have light melanin. Also pigment, but melanin determines the color. Melanin skin color is a result of absorbing most visible light. It functions as a sunscreen. Another component of melanin results in yellowish to reddishness in hair and skin. It's responsible for red hair. That's what I had. Freckles, what I have. And with this people group, UV light breaks our skin down, forming these freckles. Therefore, the difference between black and white people are not different pigments but different amounts of the same pigments. We've just got different melanins. So it's correct to say that black and white people are really dark brown and light brown people, simply with different amounts of melanin. Interesting. Well, Adam and Eve, they would have been brown. They would have had olive skin. And they could go either way, depending how the people groups and where they went geographically. Of course, they were contained in one area, so they remain more of an olive skin color. Noah and his sons coming off the ark likewise would have been a brown. There would have been that olive color to them, which means their melanin could go either direction. After the flood, until Babel, there was really only one cultural group keeping people of their skin color from going extremes. Very dark, very light skin would appear, but they would intermarry, bringing them back to brown again. The effects of Babel, here's the thing, the effects of Babel caused dispersion of people within language groups, language groups they took off, moving away into territories where they would fill the earth. And since they would intermarry within their own people group, similar characteristics began to form. Noses, shapes of the face, eye shapes, skin color, Body size and structure would emerge. In these new environments, those who moved to areas of little sun, for instance, the dark-skinned people would not be able to produce enough vitamin D. Thus, would less healthy, fewer children, in time, light-skinned people became predominant. Think of how this is true 
when it comes to skin color in relation to geography today. You will notice how that relates to geography. It relates to our position of the sun and how much sun we have. Conversely, fair-skinned people like myself in sunny regions suffer from skin ulcers, cancers, folate deficiencies, allowing the dark-skinned people to dominate that population. As always, there are exceptions to this. I mean, exceptions like, what about the Inuit people up north? There are dark-skinned people. And yet, when you think about their diet, their diet's largely fish, tons of vitamin D, providing healthy skin without sunlight. Brown-skinned people like the uh, pygmy people of, of Central and South America. And in these people groups, again, factors racial discrimination, pushing people into jungles, into segregated areas in which they became a people group in and of themselves. It was an attempt to try to purify a race. Here's the point. The dispersion at Babel broke up a large interbreeding group into small interbreeding groups that we now have the different nations of our world. This began to formulate unique language dialects, unique physical features, skin colors, what we now today know as the races of people. You know, when we start to take sides in separate places on that, it's so silly, really, when you realize that it's simply the melanin. Blame it on the melanin. Blame it on where we are because the skin color represents nothing more than where that we went God's plan in order for the people to populate the earth. I want to close our time with a story from church history. It's the story of a man, man by the name of Athanasius. Yes, Athanasius. Not necessarily an easy one to get your tongue around. But I want to talk about Athanasius, a true story, a historical story. It comes from about the fourth century at the time when the church worldwide was fighting against a lot of error of uh, multiple uh, gods and the worship of gods. And in this particular period of time, just four centuries removed from Christ having gone to the cross and risen again, in the early stages of Christianity, this came strong to bring heresy into the church. That Jesus Christ, we know him as the Son of God, and yet there was this strong rise, the element of error and heresy. Well, Athanasius, he contended that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the true Son of God, and the only Son of God, the true Messiah. However, there was another belief, and it was called Iranianism. And it was the culture of the day of tolerance. In other words, Let's not have division. For the, sake of, for the sake of unity, let's put aside our differences. And that became strongly propagated in that particular fourth century. According to Arius, Christ was a demigod. Yeah, he's a little higher than the angels, but created nonetheless. Constantine, the emperor in 312, proclaimed himself a Christian, and yet he began to ascribe to the Arian heresy. Well, all these people continued to rise up in the midst of this, but, but Athenus, he stood true to this. He was saying, no, we can't, we can't embrace this. We must be true. There is one Christ, one God. Well, out of all this chaos, Constantine finally thought he would resolve it, and so they put together a church council. It was called the Nicene Council. 300 bishops gathered, 
and they studied the scriptures, and out of that, we have the Nicene Creed today. I want to read just a little bit of it. It goes like this. We believe in one God, the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. In one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of lights, very God and very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things are made. Even at this, even though this is great and it's used today in many of our churches, the Arians continued to spread false doctrine and the years that followed the bishops that came and died, they continued to propagate this as faith. Athanasius, he fought against it. He did everything he could to continue to remain true. There is only one God, one way. All types of things took place during that time, and he stood true. He continued to fight for what was true, fighting against heresy. He refused to give up the fight. When people pointed out that the whole world was against him, he replied, no, I'm against the whole world. Even Constantine would turn against him and excommunicate him. Well, people died. Athanasius remained true. And the message of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior would be preserved in the midst of a huge propaganda of error of doctrine. Here's the point. The point is this. The final credit for the defeat of the Arian false heresy, the gospel of, of demigods of Christ, does not go to the church council, doesn't go to the bishops, doesn't go to Constantine. It goes to really one guy, Athanasius. Athanasius, who preached wrote and argued the scriptures. He was a human instrument of God to keep the church from sliding into heresy and false doctrine. Here's the point. You and I, we're that instrument today. It's so much easier to go the wide way of secularism. It's so much easier in order to keep unity, to give up some of the tenets of what we believe. It's so easy. Yet God has called me, he's called you, to be faithful ambassadors of biblical truth. In other words, like Athanasius, just keep proclaiming it over and over for the long haul. And may we, like Athanasius, working tirelessly, refuting error, speaking, writing, sharing, standing up against million-year ideas that we stand true to the Scripture. There is one God in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. May we forever remain true. So my desire as we wrap up these 10 weeks, oh God, help us to remain true and don't simply give way because of pressure, but remain true to your word the way you wrote it and we will be true proclaimers of it. I wanna pray for you and as soon as I finish praying, then I wanna just mention a few things that are coming up. So Father in heaven, we just thank you God for the richness of your word. And even living in this 21st century, we are able to study your word in a way that we can look at the times and study the times and realize that as the years go by, we have fresh evidence of that what your word said, and we had to believe it by faith. We see evidence of our faith being rewarded, that all that you said was indeed true. I pray that you would solidify that in our hearts, help us to grow more deeply and rich 
in faith, in depth, in our belief system, as you are, you as our living God, our Savior. We ask this in your precious and powerful name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.